3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nations. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast and you're here in studio with Idwin, me, me, Idwin. I don't think you're here in studio, that'd be a little bit creepy. So, um, kind of jumping in today's show, we're going to be starting off quite slow this morning, but kind of getting a little bit packed towards the end. So we're going to have a few um, previous conversations starting off and then our first call interview for today is going to be at 7.40 with Matt from the National Parks Victoria Association. And he'll be talking about kind of um, this really exciting conservation agreement that's coming up. Uh, It's before the Daniel Andrews government right now. He'll be talking about why we um, kind of want to see this, I don't know, taken on entered into our parliament, and that will be about protecting more forestry around the western uh, park range in Victoria. Then at about 7.50, we're going to have another Matt, Matt Nurse from up in Sydney, and he's going to be talking to us about a interesting new study he's done, which kind of looks into, it looks into the way we perceive facts through our political prism, prisms. So this is kind of... <laughs> I was saying to him on the phone the other day, it's a little bit disappointing. You, you kind of assume that the way we interpret facts is through our own political beliefs and backgrounds and all that. But um, Matt's actually conducted a study which proves it, so that'll be really fascinating. And then finally, at about 8.15, we're going to have two lovely ladies joining us in the studio to talk about the Progress Conference. Now, this kind of feeds into um, Will's weekly you know, wrap-up, uh, but last week I was part of um, the Progress Conference down here in Melbourne, which is kind of a big conference collecting together social leaders, social speakers, anyone who labels themselves as a progressive. And throughout it, there was a lot of sharing of ideas and different community organisations and stuff. So that was absolutely fascinating um, at the time. And I thought we'd get a few people, a few members or a few participants, I should say, to kind of come in and tell us what they got out of progress. So yeah, that, as I said, we're going to be having quite a packed second up show However, we'll be starting the show um, from Kate, with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association with an update on the arrests of journalists within that region. We'll be getting to that in just a minute, but first up, we're going to have some alternative news. So, unfortunately, I don't have Rob in studio to deliver his fantastic wrap-up, but you'll get me and the Paladin Group. All right, we'll be back in just one moment. Some folks know about it, some don't.
And that's the Nitty Gritty uh, by Shirley Alice, our official tune for Alternative News. And this week we're bringing up kind of an oldie but an interesting one, uh, something that we should be keeping watch on, which is the Paladin Group. So in January this year, Scott Morrison signed off a contract extension for the Paladin Group. Now, the Paladin Group is the firm in charge of providing security for asylum seekers on Manus Island. Exactly whose security it's ensuring is deeply questionable as the private security group continues to face allegations of suspicious payments, lying during tender process and deceptive conduct for which it is currently under investigation and audit. The alleges uh, raised by the Australian Financial Review in particular include accusations against the group of making $20 million a month from the Department of Home Affairs despite the estimated costs of operations on Manus Island being less than $3 million. Furthermore, from the AFR investigation, local workers can be hired by the company and paid as little as $2 an hour. Additionally, um, some other controversies surrounding this group is the fact that one of its founders is not permitted to enter the PNG and another of its co-founders is under 106 counts of fraud and money laundering held, um, uh, currently held against him. Other ex-CEOs are busy suing Paladin and others are saying they were hushed up. So there's a lot of different allegations and accusations flying around. But we just don't hear about it. I mean, I was talking about this story back in February, and yet we still have—I still haven't been able to find someone to interview due to such a lack of knowledge. And looking into that, um, really, it's about our government. Our government hasn't been releasing the details. In fact, Dutton continues to refuse to release this, um, stating that um, he believes the disclosure of the requested material would or could be reasonably expected to cause damage to international relations, specifically Australia's relations with Papua New Guinea. So he's been using that uh, since last year as a justification for not disclosing greater details, even when he was uh, prompted by uh, Greens and the, uh, sorry, Senator uh, the Green Senators and Nick Xenophon and Senator Sterling Griff. Apologies for kind of stumbling over there. Anyway, so all we really know is that Paladin arrived on the scene as previous contract um, contractor for security on Manus Island, Transfield withdrew from offshore security. And since its arrival, it's been awarded contract after contract that have been widely criticised um, for going to the group rather than something more a more reputable organisation or a more local alternative. A larger critique also remains of it being a private organisation which doesn't allow for us to provide resources, conduct internal audits or regulate its actions through government. So you get the problem you do with a lot of private organisations where it's just, it's private, they get to do what they want, they're a business. Meanwhile... Our government remains uh, is paying this group extraneous amounts of money. Um, so talking about Will's kind of number game, their contracts have been valued about $72 million from September 2017 to February 2018. All in all, for a collection of 22 months' work, the contracts have valued to about $423 million, which is just a huge amount of money. And... As I said before, the Australian government extended that contract uh, earlier this year with $109 million. But why is this relevant now? Why am I bringing it up this week? I mean, alternative news is supposed to be current. Well, Paladin is under investigation for its $23 million contract. That was happened last year um, and an aud- in an audit that will actually end in two weeks. Meanwhile, we continue to pay this organization huge amounts of money um, and we continue to not know anything about them. But... As of this week, um, kind of the tone has shifted around this whole conversation with the Papua New Guinea um, calling to end Paladin, the Paladin Group on Manor. So the, the Papua New Guinea government has actually come out and said, we would like to see the contract terminated. 
Now, this is potentially motivated by the PNG government's want for local staff and uh, kind of local jobs of security. The government has come out and said, we have viable local alternatives. Um, but it also, um, the, the Papua New Guinean uh, government has also suggested that it's kind of around a transparent tender process. And seeing as, as I said before, there are allegations and accusations around some of the leaders and um, their, their place in Papua New Guinea, this could also be part of it. Now, unfortunately, our government alternatively still remains silent. Dutton still says um, pretty much nothing except for the fact that there will likely be a continuation of this contract. If you're kind of interested in finding out more, I do suggest you check out um, the Australian Financial Review. It's one of the only kind of areas I was able to find information on this, but there's a fantastic article by Angus Grigg, Jonathan Shapiro, and Lisa Murray. And they're really wonderful within the story because they've also continued a fact check of not only what they're saying in their article, but also the government's response and kind of updating as it goes along. Another kind of like tangible (laughs) segue, I suppose, is um, a wonderful kind of collection of stories I've been reading recently called Beyond the Wire by The Guardian. Um, I, I suggest you check it out if you'd like to hear kind of the direct voices and experiences from people on offshore detention centres. Beyond the Wire looks at um, taking individual stories and really just presenting them without any packaging or any media framing or stuff. It's just the direct stories to talk about direct experience. And it's been absolutely, um, it's been a big cause of empathy, I think. One one point to come out of the Progress Conference, which I'm only going to touch on now, but one, one of the things that came out of the Progress Conference that I went to last week was one of the communications experts said, we need empathy, not sympathy in our messages. And she said this because she said, look, sympathy makes us donate. You know, we, we feel sorry for someone. We, you know, we, we give a little bit of our time. But empathy really promotes greater, longer change because what we can do is we can see ourselves in the situation and the issue and you can go, right, here's how I can help. Here's how I would want to deal with it. Here's how I'd want to be treated. So that was just a fascinating kind of point that was made. Alternatively, what's also happening around town is um, the protest against the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement is getting closer. So that's July uh, the 1st next week. So that's Monday next week. From 6.30 to 8.30, there'll be a big public forum in the Victorian Trades Hall. And the, the group that's organising it uh, really suggests you get down to them. So if you remember, we, we actually talked to Pat last week, one of the organisers, and she was really encouraging anyone who's interested in this regional comprehensive economic partnership agreement to get down and kind of hear a bit more. If you remember, some main takeaways from last week's interview was that this agreement could potentially foster greater company monopolies within our region. It could remove government power and kind of sovereignty around trade protectionism and tariffs and it could harm kind of small and local businesses. So all things to keep in mind. And if you're a little bit sceptical, go along to the forum. Have a listen. Figure out, you know, where you stand on it. Anyway, so that will be coming up again, as I said, on July the 1st. We're going to go into a quick song, and then we will be back. This is Cherry Coloured Funk by the Kuketa Twins. And you're listening to 3CR. Now, my producers just told me that it's actually pronounced Cocteau Twins. And it's one of those classic 
classic situations of having read something for years and not actually known how it's pronounced. So I appreciate that. That was the Cocteau Twins with Cherry Colored Funk. Um, and the main singer from that band, fun fact, said that she said singing in English is terrifying. So the first time she kind of got to the mic, she actually sung a lot of made up words because she said, you know, how do you kind of combat that fear? Anyway, we'll be listening in uh, now to a conversation that happened back with Tuesday Home Times Jan Bartlett, who caught up with Kate Lewis on recent events in occupied uh, Western Sahara. Let's listen in. On the line now is Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. And Kate, let's begin with a, a trial in Morocco yesterday of a young Sahrawi journalist. You're referring to Naza Al Khalidi who is a journalist. She works with a group called Akib Media, and they are Sahrawis, and they're wanting to record and send out the story of what is happening to them under Moroccan occupation. Naza was apprehended when she was streaming, live streaming on her phone, police beating demonstrators, peaceful demonstrators, last December. And she was taken in for questioning and not treated at all well, insulted and so on, but she was released at that point. But then subsequently she was uh, arrested at home and taken into custody. And then they announced that there would be a trial against her. They had a new accusation which hadn't ever been leveled before at journalists which was that she wasn't properly licensed or she didn't have what you might call a press card to be practicing journalism and of course if any Sahrawi applied for such a document I'm quite sure they would be refused but uh, that doesn't stop them from wanting to prosecute her for lacking these documents or certifications. So um, so she's been awaiting trial. She was, was first scheduled, oh, I can't remember, there was one before, and then there was one in May that was postponed until the 24th of June. That's yesterday. And at the first time, the postponement is a, current, is a common thing that the Moroccans do. They, it, it sort of enables them to keep what they see as troublemakers out of circulation for a bit longer. They can just postpone it another month. And it wouldn't have surprised me at all if they'd managed to postpone it once again. The other thing that happened last time was that five or seven international observers were expelled from the territory. They ha- five lawyers had come to observe the trial, plus two Norwegian uh, human rights observers. They were not allowed to attend. And this time, there were um, three journalists, three, sorry, three Spanish lawyers who were sent back. They came on a plane. They were not allowed to leave the plane and they were sent straight back to the Canary Islands and two American uh, lawyers came representing the American Bar so uh, Bar Association 
so they still didn't want any international scrutiny on what they were doing. Nevertheless, they apparently did allow some local Sahrawi uh, human rights activists to attend the trial. So that, far, that, that much was okay. And they heard the case and they've announced that the verdict will be given on the 8th of July. So that's where we're up to with Naza. Do we know how she is, her health? Well, I don't know too much about that, actually. I was hoping that we might be able to link up and have a chat with her, but the timing doesn't work terribly well for this particular broadcast. We might be able to do it another time, perhaps. She, uh, she isn't actually in custody. I, she has been released, so hopefully she'll be able to look after herself if her health isn't ideal. And you can see by reports why these people, these journalists, are so needed in Western Sahara with a, a very disturbing report of three Sahrawi civilians brutally beaten by agents of the Moroccan paramilitary and security forces. Exactly, exactly. So they, they want to be able to do this with impunity. They do not want to have any scrutiny from the outside world on these activities. And some people think it's an odd way for the Moroccans to proceed because if their idea is that Western Sahara already belongs to them, but they know that, that they've got to get approval for this, the traditional way of doing it for the United Nations is to have a vote of self-determination. And you would think that the, if the Moroccans wanted to, to do this, they would get the Sahrawis, they would be nice to them and make them want to have Moroccan rule. The way they treat them you know, like this, the Sahrawis would never want to agree to having Moroccan rule in their country. So uh, it, it, it is a bit surprising why they should behave like this. And, of course, it's not just the Sahrawi journalists who are stopped from doing their work. It's the Moroccan journalists as well. Oh, absolutely, yes, exactly. They, they have severe penalties. There are three taboo subjects in in, in, in Morocco for the press. One is about the king. You can't say anything at all, you know, about his health or his, you know, life. I mean, you can only praise him. And the other is religion. You can't say anything about Islam that would be in any way regarded as detrimental or critical or whatever. And the third subject is Western Sahara. So uh, journalists who have tried to do, do something on the subject of Western Sahara, Moroccan journalists, uh, a, a newspaper that published a photograph of the president of Western Sahara in their newspaper. That journalist got carpeted. I think they, the paper got fined. And um, sometimes they find them out of existence because a small independent newspaper can't afford to have big fines. Yeah. Uh, so yes, and there's been a lot of trouble up in the Rif area in the north of Morocco, and people reporting on that have had a lot of trouble as well. And what we have in Western Sahara is what's called citizens' journalism, isn't yes. it? 
Citizen so journalism, they call it. Yes, that's right. I mean... How do they do it? Well, they they somehow get hold of cameras. And often it's just a phone or a good phone. And when there are is anything happening... And the Saharawis are brave. You know, they know that they're going to get uh, stamped on for doing it, but they like to go out and express their opinions in the street and um, have their chance go asking for self-determination or, or sometimes not particularly for self-determination, just for their rights inside uh, Morocco as citizens. They want employment. They want proper housing which are all, uh, where, where Moroccans are always given priority to these things. So, uh, you know, this, this is what they, they, they and if they show a, a flag in the public, this is like a red rag to a bull for the Moroccan authorities, and they will immediately try to seize the flag, punish the person who's holding it, and, and so on. So the... Uh, Sometimes these Sahrawis, you know, more or less taunting the police with their waving the flag and trying to keep Western Sahara alive as a as an issue, and they want it to be seen that the Sahrawis in no way are compliant with what Morocco is wanting to do in their country. And we've got to also acknowledge that there are journalist organisations outside of the country who are supporting the Sahrawi people? Oh, there are. And there has been a very interesting report just in the last uh, week or so from Reporters Without Borders. And it's a, it's a really interesting read. It's, it's not long. It's, it's about 30-something pages. But it's um, a very good read, actually. They, they, go back, they go back with using journalist sources to describe the initial Spanish uh, colony and then the takeover by Morocco and um, bringing it up to date. The press release was called Western Sahara, a Desert for Journalism, Journalists. And it's... Uh, oh, I think that's the, the reporters called that too, actually. But uh, report, they also call it uh, a no-go zone for journalists. And they are very... They document all the journalists who have been refused entry or turned back or expelled if they've been discovered. This happened to the, the, the last... You know, this particular recent crackdown started in about 2014 and the only big report that I've seen that's come from an uh, international journalist was from Amy Goodman, who uh, runs a, 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 an independent broadcasting um, uh, show called Democracy Now. And she was in Marrakesh for the uh, C22 climate conference. And she and her team managed to get into Western Sahara. But as soon as the authorities realized what she was doing, they surrounded them in, when they were in a cafe. They wanted to stop them from uh, attending a demonstration that the Sahrawi activists were putting on. And they, uh, they more or less then questioned, you know, sent them home again. But they, by then they had 
been there for four, uh, for four days and the video that they produced afterwards is called Four Days in Occupied Western Sahara. So uh, she was able to do that, but, you know, what did she have to say? She had, what, The main thing that she could report on was Moroccan repression, uh, thanks to the Moroccan authorities. <laughs> so uh, it's a very odd situation. I could just mention uh, when I was recently uh, met, met up with a old friend who used to be a member of the European Parliament from Leeds, he said that he went once on an official uh, trip to Morocco and when he arrived, they said to him, now, you know, there's three subjects that you mustn't talk about. One is about the king and the other is about religion and the third thing is about Western Sahara. And he said, oh, well, that's a pity. Those are the three issues I wanted. <laughs> that's the reasons for I wanted to come. <laughs> so uh, politicians aren't allowed to talk about those things as well as journalists. There's been another call for the UN to intervene, isn't there, hasn't there, with um, monitoring of human rights in Western Sahara? Yes, Dr. Dr. Sidi Omar, the uh, Polisario Front representative to the United Nations, he was... Um, referring to, again, one of these violent attacks by plainclothes security forces. And he said that this really shows that they, the UN must deploy a human rights monitoring mission uh, without further delay in occupied Western Sahara. Uh, this has been called for time after time in the Security Council and sometimes with strong backing from the special representative of the Secretary-General, but always France manages to veto any extension of the mandate of the UN mission to include human rights. Why did they get away with that, France? Why do they want to do it in the first place? I suppose it's a very long story, really, why France is so beholden to Morocco. But just human rights, you'd think, you know. Exactly, and, and the rest of the time France likes to parade itself as the foundation of human rights, liberty, fraternity, equality and so on. So it, it, it's a bit of a paradox quite why they are willing to stick their necks out so much for Morocco on this topic. And of course because of those five countries control it you've only got to have one says no and then nothing goes ahead exactly the, the power of the veto is also under question really in, in the UN but I'm not sure that it's a very active questioning at the moment but people do raise that sometimes and say it, it, it shouldn't really be able uh, allowed the whole scene has kind of changed quite a lot since the UN was first set up after the Second World War so it, it probably would be a good idea to reappraise it and maybe add an African country to the permanent members the permanent members are, you know China, Russia USA UK and France and that's very heavily biased to Europe and very unrepresentative of uh, 
but a very large proportion of the world population in Africa and Latin America and the rest of Asia. We still have European countries, though, don't we, having support for Morocco's actions in Western Sahara. What's happening in Africa at the moment to support the people of Western Sahara? Well, the African Union, I mean, Western Sahara is a full member of the African Union, and that that union set up this little body of, of, of three, it was called the Troika, it was like the the present president of the African Union, the past president, and the, well, the future one, and that presumably there's a kind of vice president that by convention would become the next president. And anyway, I'm not sure that that has really been, come very operative. It's one of the, I think it was influenced by the Secretary General's personal uh, uh, envoy, Horst Kurler, who has unfortunately felt it necessary to resign because he wasn't getting proper support from the European Union or the United Nations even. We don't know quite where, where we're up to now with the peace process because of that. And what about the US push for peace? What does that mean? They're very keen, I mean particularly John Bolton is keen to get the, sorry, stop, stop the sort of long stalemate that is just keeping the peace mission on the ground but in a state of no peace and no war. That They hold the ceasefire, but they haven't actually made the peace. The article that you're referring to was by a, a sort of a peace group, I think, who, but, but somebody from a, um, with a, with a, uh, a military background who was suggesting that what they needed to do was do to track diplomacy and to have a lot of more talking between the society members rather than just the political leaders. So you could have academics, you could have community or religious representatives or other grassroots NGOs meeting together and trying to pursue dialogue at that more kind of level right inside society rather than just have the leaders talking among themselves and coming up with some solution they would impose on the the, the society. It, It sounds a good idea to me, but whether or not it will be anyone's going to adopt it, I don't know. Okay, but I'll leave it there, Kate, and hopefully in the next couple of days we can do an interview with Nazra and play it on the program next week. Yes. And that was Jan Bartlett speaking to Kate Lewis uh, with an update from the Australian Western Sahara Association. For updates around this issue, you can actually tune into Tuesday Home Time every Tuesday at 4pm. And also mentioned within that kind of interview was Democracy Now!, which is a show that we also uh, broadcast at Monday at 9am. So that's kind of just some of the things. Just a quick update, guys. Now, Radical Radio, Radiothon was obviously not last week, two weeks ago now. Um, and just letting you know... Uh, we've actually reached almost our target. We've got up to about $814, but we've still got a little bit of a way to go. Um, so here on Tuesday breakfast, sorry, Wednesday breakfast, whoops, 
just appropriate a show. Here on Wednesday breakfast, uh, our target was $1,000. So we're just $200 off. Um, and $200, for example, allows us to podcast um, our favorite shows and kind of so you can listen back at any time. So that's where the money goes. So it very much goes to the station. If you do want to keep this station up and running, uh, please, we do need your donations. Anything is fantastic. Um, I know I've, I've donated five dollars or to a few shows because I'm a very poor uni student but the point is anything you're willing to give would be absolutely fantastic and very much appreciated now you can ring in with that donation on nine four one nine eight three double seven or sms in it on zero four double eight eight oh nine eight five five um so an update is we've got one hundred and seventy thousand and we uh, as a station and we are going for two hundred and fifty thousand so we've got a bit of a way to go but, you know, we're getting there. We're feeling it. Anyway, we're now going to have uh, another song. This is actually taken from Triple Day, but it's a thing they do where they like to do like a version of it. So this is Aurora doing a like a version of Teardrops, Teardrop by Massive Attack. And I thought it was rather beautiful. So that's why we're getting a bit of a special song today. This is our country. We've never forgotten where we've come from. Or who we are. We keep our culture strong. Now it's time to come together. Talk as equals. And write our own future. This is our country. And this is our time. Treaty is time. Enroll now for the First People's Assembly of Victoria election. Authorised by the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, Melbourne. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 94198377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Power Radical Radio. your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 03-9419-8377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to.
And you're listening to 3CR. Now we're going to jump into our next interview. We have Matt on the line, who has just conducted a really interesting study looking at how we perceive facts through our political prisms. Not going to lie, I use that sentence just for the alliterative phrase. However, we have uh, Matt on the line to make a little bit more sense of it. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Ivan. How are you? Very good, thank you. So um, the abstract of the report starts with... um, uh, our facts, sorry, our, our, um, our opinion is not only influenced by scientific data such as likelihood of harm, consequences of failing to act, and the cost of and effectiveness of mitigation. Instead, when people receive information about controversial topics of decision-relevant science like ACC, they often defer to political attitudes. Sorry yeah. for reading your own report back to you, but what? No, that's the... fine. There's a little <laughs> bit of academic language there, but basically mm-hmm. what I was trying to figure out... Um, when people look at difficult issues like climate change, are they using their smarts or are they just relying on their political identity to help mm-hmm. them make decisions? And that's a well-known thing about the human brain, that it's too hard to use our smarts all the time. You get very tired and exhausted looking mm-hmm. at all the numbers behind mm-hmm. everything. So we often use, you know, oh, I'm a Labor person or a Greens person or I'm a One Nation or a Liberal person and they like this issue or don't like that issue, so I'll just go with them. And that's okay sometimes, but on big issues like climate change, it actually leads to big problems, which are obviously playing out at the moment. Absolutely. So it sounds like it's almost one of those things where the brain decides to be effective, and by being effective it kind of skips a few steps to just kind of conglomerate its opinions. Yeah, and and that's fine. Like, if you're choosing a pair of shoes, you might say, oh, I've always liked Converse, so I'm just going to get a pair of those. That's fine. Instead of going, oh, this one's, you know, this number of millimetres thick, or, you know, I need one that's definitely waterproof or whatever, (laughs) looking at all the facts. Like, like, if you live your life that way, you're going to have a very boring, frustrating life. Absolutely. But, of course, as you said, it's a bit more serious when something about, like, climate change. Um, How did this study come about? Well, I actually had a look at a study in the United States which showed that, um, people who are smarter when it comes to um, gun control laws were less likely to agree on what the facts about whether bringing in gun laws um, reduce crime or not. Which, and instead, they fell into their ideological camps. They fell into Democrat or Republican camps. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's really weird. So some people who are smarter were less likely to correctly interpret information about whether those laws would be effective or not. I found that really counterintuitive, very mm. weird. And I thought to myself, well, if that's true, um, then maybe it applies to climate change attitudes in Australia. And I went into the project hoping to find out that this wasn't the case. Yeah. I really wanted people here to be a bit smarter than the Yanks and, and our <laughs> attitudes on climate change to be a bit more in line with what scientists actually say. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, that's not what I found. So what I did is I um, about 504 people only Greens and only One Nation people, because I wanted to find the people who are very strongly opposed to each other on climate change, and I couldn't think of anyone more diametrically opposed than those two groups. I think you did well. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, and then I gave them a maths test to find out how good they were at maths, and that let me find out whether people, when interpreting facts on climate change and numerical facts on climate change, were using their political identities or were they actually using their smarts to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So what I did first is I showed them some data about whether um, a cream would cure a, a, a rash or not, which gave me a good control, a good baseline to figure out whether the smarter people could interpret that numerical data better. And I found that the smarter people were very good at interpreting and the less smart people were less good, and that's fine. That's but when I 
<laughs> yes. And, but when I asked them about climate change, they just fell very strongly into their ideological camps, into their tribes. And that happened much more for those people that were very numerically gifted. So it, it's, it, it shows that we can't just assume that because people can understand facts, that that will actually persuade them to change their attitudes about topics that they, they care strongly about. Mm. And that's, that's really worrying. I mean, you know, a lot of people assume that, oh, we just need to show people the facts about climate change or maybe the facts about vaccinations or, or anything else. And that people will go, oh, well, that's what the facts say, that's what the scientists say, so I'm going to change my attitude. Absolutely. And reading the report, um, one of the things I kind of was reading in your like previous research that you built upon was uh, this kind of research around human thinking cleaved into system one and system two, system one being like a default intuitive, bias, more biased approach and system two a more systematical and logical. Um, could you kind of explain how this, this backed your research, influenced your research and kind of influenced this approach to, uh, yeah, to, to facts and how we break them down and understand them? Yeah, so system one's the default mode. Um, we, we're in system one, sort of psychology stuff, if anyone's interested in studying this stuff or has studied it before. Um, it's the default mode that we're almost always in. It's the comfortable mode that humans are in, wandering around, looking at things, assessing risks, making decisions, based on what we've done before or what our mum told us was good or, um, you know, that's nice and colourful jumper, I'll buy that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the sort of system one sort of stuff. But if you're doing something like, let's say, for example, you're buying your very first car, then your decision-making, you feel, is quite different. You sit there and go, oh, well, you know, it's a second-hand Toyota Corolla and it's, you know, how much fuel does it use? And you start actually using some numbers to inform your decision-making on those things that are much more important to you. And that's what mm. System 2 is. But if you've ever done that, and, and no doubt you have, <laughs> um, then you can't stay in that mode for long. And that's that's why System 2's got a bit of a weakness because, you know, it's taxing, it draws down on our energy and um, and it's also not very fun. You know, <laughs> we want to sit there and go, oh, I want to buy a red car and sometimes you do that. Um, <clears throat> so that's what that research is all about. Um, but it does lead to big problems when people make, um, you know, group decisions about how we should live our society and what massive risks we should deal with based not on that System 2 thinking, Mm. That very systematic thinking, but based on, oh, Pauline likes this or Bob Brown doesn't like that, and so therefore I'm going to do it or not do it or vote this way or not vote that way. Uh, and, and you've got to remember that, you know, um, politics can be skewed by a very small number of people. Mm. Um, for example, you know, if a certain party gets the balance of power in the Senate or not, that has a big, big say on what kind of laws Australians have to live under what sort of society we, we, we want for ourselves. Absolutely, and, and referencing politics or talking politics, um, obviously coming up to this last election, it was declared by a lot of different groups as the climate election, and yeah. then we saw the Liberal government uh, elected in with zero, zero policy. I mean, um, the yeah. ACF, I think it was, it was totaled as 4% effective <laughs> policy to fixing climate change. Um, would you blame this bias that, for what we saw, uh, results in the election? It would certainly have some sort of effect, mm. definitely. Yeah, so um, to some extent this was still a climate change election, although I think we should acknowledge there are people who think to themselves, yes, this is a climate change election, 
and I'm going to vote for the Liberal Party or vote for One Nation. We should not let ourselves think that um, just because people are prioritising climate change issues, that means that they're going to be voting for strong government action on climate change. And it's important to realise that there are a lot of people out there who are scared of government action on climate change. So there were some polls earlier this year that said, oh, yeah, um, Australians are prioritising climate change in this election. And what they may have actually been saying, some of them, is I'm very worried that the government's going to shut down coal mines and I, my family relies on that and my community relies on that. And it's unfortunate that that is true. But for some people, you know, close to the breadline, that's something we probably need to think about. And I think, you know, instead of ramming facts of them and saying, oh, but the, you know, 97% of climate um, scientists say this and mm. the level of CO2 in the um, atmosphere is that, we need to think about um, actually using this to our advantage. So... Can we talk about their political um, affiliations? Some of those people are presumably union members or ALP, previous voters or something like that. Um, can we talk to them in their terms rather than just mm. throwing facts at them? And I think that's the real opportunity in this. Mm-hmm. One of the things that occurs to me is that the things that may have influenced my politics and your politics and everybody else's political views on things the things that influence those views are probably not going to work on the people who are um, voting for One Nation or, or the Liberal Party or something else. We need to think of alternative approaches. Mm-hmm. And so, um, for example, you know, Bob Brown's convoy to Queensland, as well-intentioned as that was, um, going there and saying stop Adani to people who rely on Adani, you know, I don't think that's going to work. Didn't quite grab the tone of what they needed to get. Yeah. yeah, so I think it's an opportunity to be a bit nuanced about things and understand people's perspectives and, and not just throw a fact like, you know, Adani's doing damage to the environment, therefore. Absolutely, and it was, inter- it was interesting how kind of through the study you've pro- proven that we walk around in these filter bubbles and kind of echo chambers. And I think yeah. we create this mindset. Um, I was talking to a few people at a protest rally uh, for climate change where it's like, I think this way. Everyone else must think this way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and exactly. so, yeah, using this like th- this language of the people, language of the person you're actually talking to, sounds like a much more effective way than just kind of shouting someone down until they listen to yeah, you. Yeah, we've right. noticed that's not worked. <laughs> the other lesson for us all in this is that we all probably do this to some extent. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, what football club you go for probably reflects a bit more about your identity um, and where you've come from. Um, then, you know, any kind of fact-based assessment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. just drawing this out to show people that, you know, it does affect me and everybody else. So, for example, if you grow up in um, the western suburbs of Melbourne and from a working-class background, you're probably going to go for the Bulldogs and that's fine. <laughs> and if you are from a higher um, socio-demographic profile, you might go for Hawthorne and that's fine. But you're not sitting there and going, hmm, the probability of success of the Bulldogs is X, Y, Z, you know, I'm going to do the mm, formula definitely. and therefore I'm going to go for the Bulldogs. So, but it does make us think if we do it with football, then we probably do it with politics. We probably do it with lots of stuff. And that's a real warning, I think, for everybody, including myself. Absolutely. And uh, sorry to interrupt you, but like, it's definitely through identifying that hopefully we can lessen its effects, do you think? Like, by able to be going, right, where where is this coming from? Is this coming from my political leaning? Okay. And kind of applying a critical eye. Do you think we'll be able to mobilize people better? I think that's right. the other thing that I think, though, is that um, sometimes you feel like you're going to pay a penalty in your social group from changing your mind about something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are groups of people who go, oh, well, my social group says that 
um, for example, vaccinations are unsafe. Mm-hmm. But then they start reading things that are going, oh, actually, the evidence needs to say that vaccinations are safe. Mm-hmm. But if I start telling my friends, oh, I'm going to go and vaccinate my kids, they're all going to yell at me, for example. Um, we need to create social groups where changing your minds about things is not frowned upon, but yeah. is actually encouraged. Absolutely. So if we had social groups where, you know, that sort of scenario happened, and somebody said, hang on, I've just found all this evidence to that vaccinations are safe. Instead of paying a penalty, what if we had people going, oh, really, that's really useful information. Let's have a look at that. Let's talk about that. Absolutely. And I suppose we were having a quick conversation about this the other day, but it's that that danger if we do deny people that, that ability to change uh, and we, we deny the ability to, re- you know, to, to take in new facts because of this kind of political bias and also this, this, yeah, this dogmatic approach, I suppose, or fixed yeah. approach, I should say. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure if this is something that's always existed. I suspect it's something that's been exacerbated over time mm. where people feel much greater affinity to their, their identity, particularly political identity. Um, but we need to start to weaken that. We need to sit there and go, well, sometimes my political party does make mistakes and does come out with policies I don't like and I should be able to criticise them. Yeah, really move away from this tribalism almost, that, that, wow. that, or that, that, that mentality where it's like, I'm going to go for it because this is the one I go for it. <laughs> Yeah, that's right, exactly. And, you know, I've been in conversations where I've criticised um, the political party that I prefer, and my friends have gone, oh, why would you say that? I thought you were such a supporter of what we're trying to do or something like that. Mm. And you're like, well, hang on, like, aren't I free to say we're making the wrong choice on this particular issue mm. and to actually have a look at the facts and evidence behind it without people saying that I was somehow not a worthy member of the social group that I'm in on that issue? Uh, and, yeah. and it's not something that just applies to me. I'm just providing that example. And, and perhaps people listening to this can recognise situations where they've felt that too, that others have not wanted to listen to the facts, but have just wanted to stick to the identity that they all share. Absolutely, man. I think that's a extraordinarily relatable um, thing. Is this that we are humans? We are flexible. Everything is in the grey. Um, yeah. Anywho, thank you so much for joining us, kind of on the line. Um, now, we can find your report at TNF online or you can find a great summary at The Conversation. But for now, Matt, we're going to have to say goodbye. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Owen. That was great. Wonderful. Thanks. Okay. Bye. And we'll be back just after these next few things with another interview. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 03-9419-8377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Celebrate the end of Radiothon with the friendliest punks around. Greek Resistance Bulletin is throwing a party featuring Pest, Somatised, Parlour, Punter and Gun Laws on Saturday the 6th of July at Bar 303. That's 303 High Street in Northcote. 
Listen on Tuesdays at 10pm for news from the social movements of Greece in English and Greek. And join us to celebrate the diversity of punk and support community radio 3CR. Check out Greek Resistance Bulletin on Facebook for more details. And you're listening to 3CR. We're just on 8 o'clock and we've got another Matt on the line. He's here to talk about um, following the final recommendations released by the Victorian Environment Assessment Council. Uh, the Andrews government has been given an awesome opportunity to increase and protect the amount of green in our state. 50,000 hectares, to be specific, of public parks. We have Matt on the line to tell us more about this opportunity. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. Good morning. Now, this report comes as the culmination of a lot of research into the community, a lot of consultation, and it's been reached by the Victorian Environment Assessment Council. Um, what's its kind of track for its next progress? I mean, it's obviously it's above, it's fronted to the Andrews government. Where do we see it going from here? But the process after the VAC's done their uh, consultation and assessment, um, it's basically tabled in Parliament and given to the government of the day. Um, the Andrews government then have to make a decision about whether they accept the recommendations uh, or in part or in full. Um, and essentially then they've got six months um, mm, okay. under the legislation to respond formally in Parliament. They can, of course, also announce something sooner than that. Um, but the, the, the recommendations are very good. They cover sort of key areas around the wombat, Forest near Dalesford, Wellsford near Bendigo, Pyrenees Ranges, out around Avoca and Mount Cole, west of Ballarat, uh, sort of back at Bowford. Um, and so it'll be the first park, major park, for almost a decade mm. uh, if it's accepted. So it's exciting in that sense and an impressive opportunity for the Andrews government to leave a decent legacy in the nature conservation space. Well, absolutely. And these central western parks... Um have been historically very logged and very, you know, underprotected. Uh, what's the importance of kind of re- regenerating it, I suppose? <laughs> well, they are important places and they're fairly diverse. So Wombat's mm. a fairly wet forest. Um, you know, Wellsford's very dry and sort of a box ironbark uh, forest, but some very large old trees, which are extremely rare um, now. Um, there's about 380 threatened species across the whole range and important mm-hmm. ones like uh, uh, the brush-tailed fascigar, which is lots of people aren't very common with, but it's a, a sort of a, a squirrel-like possum. It's not even a possum, but it's a it's a, related to quolls. Um, it's quite quite elusive, um, and that's uh, found in the wombat and um, a couple of the other parks. Mm-hmm. Uh, potential parks. There's also greater gliders in the wombat, which are the, our biggest glider possum, powerful owls. And importantly, it's also the headwaters of about seven uh, rivers, like the Murrumbul, yeah. Werribee, Lerdadug, <laughs> Barabadong, and a whole bunch of others. So, are uh, you, Sorry to interrupt. You just you mentioned the rivers, and I was just about to bring that up, especially with the um, horror of water management we've seen by, via our government and kind of um, uh, also, obviously, climate change and its effects on drought systems and water conservation, uh, the significance of protecting these water systems just seem to me even more important than usual. Yes, well, the headwaters are really important. And we know that um, intact forest uh, produces more water than forests that have been logged. Um, mm. And that, that, so they are important places in that context. 
You've also got Glycat Mount Coles, uh, the headwaters to the Wimmera River, which is, mm-hmm. you know, one of our long-suffering um, rivers that runs uh, sort of terminally, terminates north, uh, but it's very stressed. Um, and so any additional water that can be uh, generated by relatively intact forests uh, will be greatly helpful in, for, for some of those systems. Absolutely. And now National Parks has kind of had a mixed record with government and forestry protection. I mean, there's a pretty poor record there of really chopping up a lot of our beautiful forests in Victoria. Um, are you kind of worried this won't be successful? Why do you think this is essential to be so... Like, why do you think this is so important that it is successful? Well, these forests, um, are, you know, one small part of the puzzle, I suppose, for the total state. Mm. Um, but they do... Parks are great for... One, they secure the land, if you like, and protect it against logging and mining, which is the other issue in the in the Central West. Um, they also, uh, you know, they have a better management system and tighter regulations, um, sort of balance the recreational uses, in a sense. Um, state forests are a bit of a free-for-all, both mm-hmm. for the sort of industrial side, but also for the multitude of recreational activities. So parks are good... Uh, for doing that, and they're also a really big uh, tourism draw card for sort of regional communities. Um, so they're important in that sense. We're worried, I suppose, uh, or we're keen to see the Andrews government commit to it. There's not been a, a lot of parks established in the last little while, um, mm. in the last couple of terms of government, um, um, and so this is a, a, a key opportunity. Absolutely, and you frame this issue as uh, creating legacy for the Andrews government. I was just wondering if you could talk a bit more on that because I know from a communications angle, it's, it's a fascinating way of shaping almost the political capital come out of this. I mean, not only is it a great environmental idea, but this creates a green legacy. Uh, what do you think the significance of that is? Well, I think in the park system, um, the last two terms of government, so probably the, the lowest level of parks creation in the last 50 to 60 years. Um, yeah, the Labor government's always had pretty good credentials in terms of parks uh, creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the last big park really created in Victoria was probably the Red Gum Parks and maybe some additions in East Gippsland, but the Red Gum Parks up along the Murray uh, uh, was sort of 2009, 2010, so it's almost a decade uh, since that's happened. And so um, we're keen that uh, the Andrews government um, presents itself as, you know, because one of the progressive governments in, in Australia mm. um, takes the opportunity uh, to leave a legacy of uh, new national parks and protected areas in the central west. Absolutely. And I, I suppose the report also does emphasise that this this could be a great tourist angle. I mean, why, why not create a legacy of um, Victoria as the green state? Well, it's also the, it's pretty, in reality, they're fairly close to Melbourne these mm-hmm. days. Uh, Melbourne's growing, particularly out west, mm-hmm. you know, would be less than, would only be an hour or 90 minutes from, you know, most parts of the western or northern suburbs to get access to these forests. Absolutely. Um, you know, and if you've got good campgrounds, you know, proper signage, appropriate walking tracks, you, you, we know nature's good for people. Absolutely. Um, so, um, gives people a, an opportunity to get out into the bush. Yeah, good excuse for camping. Um, so do we expect to hear a response from Daniel Andrews soon, or is this something that we need to really push into action? I think we'll need to push it. Uh, okay. So we've got this six-month formal window, if you like. Something mm-hmm. could be happen before that. You know, there are people out there who oppose 
uh, near national parks, whether it's for some sort of vested interest or um, so the park systems, you know, if it's a national park, probably doesn't allow prospecting and prospecting, but that can happen in regional parks. So um, we need to ensure that uh, the government knows that it's supported by the general community. Absolutely. And um, if listeners are interested in kind of seeing this go through Parliament and supporting kind of this cause, now you're from the Victoria National Parks Association. Should they get involved with you or do you think yes, it'd be there's, awesome? Yes, okay. heaps of stuff on our website and you can, there's little sort of things to write letters to the to the government and um, we'll be keeping people updated. You can sign up to just one of our email lists if you want to keep updated, but we've also got a Facebook page as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on and giving us a little bit of um, an update on this. We'll have to definitely watch follow through in Parliament because I don't know about you, but I'd love to see um, Victoria a little bit more green, a little bit more parks again. <laughs> yes, no, it'd be um, great to see. So, yep. yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to keep up with you with um, the updates. Okay, great. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us. And that was Matt on the line. If you kind of wanted an alternative perspective um, on this issue and kind of parks in general and why we need public parks... Um, I really enjoyed some further reading the other day with the article National Parks Aren't Your Personal Playground by Peter Lawrence, and that's available um, on the Victorian Parks website, but it's uh, and also on ABC. But it was kind of asking why do we, when we approach these environmental projects, why do we have to ask what's in it for us, um, what's in it for me, kind of that factor. Um, this is obviously climate change is happening. We're facing the climate crisis, and environmental uh, parks are just a wonderful way to not only reconnect with nature but also foster the nature we do have. So it was just an interesting article. Um, also, if you want to catch up on illegal foresting that has been happening in Victoria, um, you can head to the ABC and there's some really good coverage there um, kind of just talking about Victorian forests. So if you look up Michael Suzak and Penny Timms, uh, there's some really great information there. We're going to be back after a few more community announcements. And, yeah, thanks for listening to Wednesday Breakfast. It's not too late. It's not too late to donate. It's not too late to donate to 3CR Radiothon 94198377 or check our website 3cr.org.au. Hey, you, you who are listening. We haven't reached our target yet, but you can help us out. Log into our website, 3cr.org.au, or call us on 94198377 and give us some support. Help us keep running this radio for another year. We need you. Outer Urban Projects and Hume City Council present... Hume Studios, a unique performance event taking place in Melbourne's Broadmeadows. Dancers, musicians and vocalists from Islander, hip-hop and classical genres alongside Middle Eastern drummers combine to give you the best of Hume's mighty arsenal of emerging talent. Featuring Milad Noruzi, Ruthie Kaisila, Natasha Hanna, Joseph Samarani, poetry by Didam Kaya, choreography by Dion Nuku and Nicola McCarthy, directed by Irini Vela. Hume Studios, three shows only, Saturday the 29th of June at 4pm and 6.30pm and Sunday the 30th of June at 3pm. Free entry, but bookings are essential. For more information and tickets, head to outerurbanprojects.org.
Outer Urban Projects, a 3CR supporter. Breaking rules of nature, bringing terror to the people. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. This is our... And you're on 3CR. Now, we're just heading into our next interview. I'm just going to chuck on one more community sting because we've just had our, our wonderful guests arrive. So we'll be back in just a moment. This is our country. We've never forgotten where we've come from. Or who we are. We keep our culture strong. Now it's time to come together. Talk as equals. And write our own future. This is our country. And this is our time. Treaty is time. And roll now for the First People's Assembly of Victoria election. Authorised by the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, Melbourne. And you're listening to 3CR. We're heading into our next interview. We're talking about the Progress Conference that happened last week. And we have Tilly in the studio and Eva on the line. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> so um, just before we start this interview, obviously... Um, obviously, we in, acknowledge that there has been some huge problems uh, with the event. Uh, mm-hmm. And yesterday, we covered some of those issues around accessibility in the conference. But this morning, we kind of wanted to focus a little bit differently on kind of the some of the ideas to come out of the conference. Mm-hmm. So I suppose um, starting starting with you, Eva, you're on the phone. Um, was what what were kind of the highlights for you from the conference? Were there any favourite speakers or anything like that? Yeah, um, I think um, Owen Jones. He was uh, incredibly smart man from Britain. He's a political columnist for The Guardian. Mm-hmm. He talked about um, the sort of dire need for the left to be united. And I think I saw that come through in a few speakers. Also, um, Kumi Nedu, the Secretary General of Amnesty, they talked about how the left, especially in... Uh, Owen Jones talked about in relation to sort of Britain and trade unions and... Jeremy Corbyn and Extinction Rebellion, all these groups on the left sort of becoming one because he said that, you know, he talks about a storm coming, which could be like a, another sort of like global financial crisis or just the collapse of the system we have at the moment. If a storm came at the moment in so many parts of the world, you know, the right mm-hmm. would be prepared and the left wouldn't. So, oh, okay. So it's kind of like prepare yourselves for the fight. Prepare yourself for the fight and unite as one sort of entity rather than all these different groups which, you know, believe in different things but all the problems and all, like, the social issues are so interconnected and that's something that I took from the event that we need to sort of have this one entity that is ready to unite and, or like, cover issues across the board that are ready to take power, basically. Yeah, and I guess, like, going on from that... um I found, I found like a huge part of the conference was about Indigenous rights and First Nations people. And I think that that was some of the few, like the few really strong speakers for me were people who were First Nations. And I think that as, as you said, um, 
What was your name on the phone? Eva. Eva. <laughs> As you said, Eva, like, it's definitely, we need to prepare ourselves for a movement across the board. And I think in Australia especially, like, that's our first point of call and mm. our main issues definitely yeah. surround First Nations. And, yeah, so some of my favourite speakers were, like, Nia Kagari and Latoya. She was phenomenal. Like, people that just, mm. they're just standing up and, and, um, and just, you know, same thing. Fight, fighting Absolutely, fight. and that was actually one of the points I was going <laughs> to raise. Is this like intersect? They're, they're talking about the intersection of movements and kind of how, like, yeah, all of these, all of these issues that we have really do intersect, and there's there is a united struggle there um, that we can all kind of combine on. So yeah, that was really fascinating. Um, another person I kind of wanted to bring up. You, you talked about um, First Nations people. There was the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance there, and they had a w- absolutely fascinating panel on um, uh, prison abolition which I definitely suggest um, some people chase up. I'll put links in the description. But I was just kind of wondering, uh, what were some, like, ideas that you'd gone, hmm, I've, I've never really thought about that or I've, or I've never thought about it from that angle or perspective. What were some ideas that really sparked your imagination and went, oh, that's interesting? Eva, is there anything kind of there? Have we touched on anything? Um, I, saw, I unfortunately didn't see that panel because I think I was oh, working. Yes, you weren't working. <laughs> but um, I saw one that was hands off our bodies. And I don't know who the speakers were individually, but it sort of consisted of, um, you know, sex worker, transgender woman, a person, um, indigenous person, uh, and a person who worked in um, advocating um, abortion policy and things like that. And they talked a lot about how, um, as you were saying before, like in in an indigenous context, like um, how colonialism and sort of, you know, the states that arisen from that, which is Australia and America, how they still have so much power over people's bodies and, you know, the choices they have mm. that have stemmed from those colonial roots. So, mm. you know, the stolen generation and and things like that and how they focused on how Indigenous women are still fighting for their rights in a world that seems sort of so liberated where, you know, we have abortion laws and things like that and um yeah i guess there's no justice without first nations justice before so that idea was still coming through that and even you know the sex worker was talking about her struggles in um getting adequate health care when it came to you know um her yeah her health and i thought that was really interesting i hadn't personally heard a lot uh about those issues and that's something I think that really needs to be talked about Absolutely, and there was that real real sense of direct experience. Um, Mm -hmm. Tilly, do you want to add anything onto that? Yeah, just with the direct experience sort of aspect of it, I think a a major point that came through quite strongly from the whole um, conference was that people who are experiencing the issues and who are first-hand having these problems and Mm -hmm. that are marginalised in communities, they need to be the people that are at the front leading this fight rather than as it has been in the past sort of you know your typical sort of patriarchal yeah. sort of set up and very bureaucracy almost you know yeah, yeah definitely and like having sort of a white leader for a indigenous community group doesn't work anymore that's not mm. like the way forward so i think that that's something that came through strongly was just like has never yeah. worked yeah absolutely and the, the final thing i want to touch on is like our education systems are pretty poor. Like, I went to that conference. I, I knew a lot of the topics raised there, but it was such a depth and complexity that we just don't get to hear in our mainstream. Yeah. Not in our mainstream media, not in our education. What are some ideas you want to take and kind of, 
I mean, apart from the ones we've spoken about, really take and go, right, other people need to know this. Other people need to get on this yeah. kind of thing. What, what kind of came out for that? I know for me, I'm doing communications at uni, and the communications expert came on, and she said, right, you need messages of empathy, not sympathy. She said, you need to be explicit. Stop using the language of your opposition. Mm. And she yeah. said, and this direct experience, we connect with human interest. So that was something I took out, and I was like, right, take it on to my education. Anything that you guys kind of take out? Quick thoughts? I think I'd, I'd just sort of... I'm going to push myself to read more uh, like from people who have had these experiences and from marginalised groups because I think actually reading like first-hand experience is so important and I think that's something that a few people touched on is like read and learn and as you say like our education system is so not up to scratch so that's why I guess you've just got to take that education into your own hands and just yeah. Take, take it all on, listen as much as you can, and then act on what you've heard rather than on what your preconceived notions are. Get smart. Yeah, <laughs> get smart, get smart. How about you, Eva? Um, I probably took that now is the time for non-violent direct action mm. and civil disobedience, and I think it was touched on... I think there was a panel on it, but I also missed that. Um, <laughs> but people did touch on it a lot. Um, I think that, you know, by now we all know that we have leaders that don't listen to their people or their scientists or their kids and, um, you know, we're living in a climate climate crisis and (laughs) um, action by people in power is virtually... Non-existent. (laughs) Yeah, I think progress, as you said before, sort of emphasise the complexities of the issues at hand Mm. and how interconnected they are and... Absolutely, and don't don't worry, Eva, I did attend that panel, so I can pass you my notes. Yeah, I think that's so incredibly important, and that's the one thing. I'll definitely be spreading, you know, having conversations with people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, Tilly, just touching on the climate crisis, thank you so much for mentioning it, Eva. I really appreciate (laughs) that. Great Uh, segue. Yeah, that kind of (laughs) segues just into a quick little bit. Um, Now, Tilly, you're actually planning to go up and uh, fight for the climate crisis uh, Mm. through the protest against Adani. Could you tell us just a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, up at Camp Binby, which is like 50 kilometres west from Bowen, um, there's a camp set up there for for non-violent direct action, as you said, Ava, that's just like trying to get on the ground and to be frontline action against Adani. And like Adani's starting, I was talking to someone on the phone this morning that's Mm -hmm. there and machinery is rolling in, but like the people up there are determined to fight and there is, they're expecting like thousands of people to come up in the next few weeks. So Mm -hmm. they're hoping that there's going to be like a a lot of numbers up there and yeah, shout out to anyone that's in Melbourne and that's got a bit of free time off uni and that's got some, you know, that's got the privilege to be able to do something like that. Like just jump on a train or jump online. There's heaps of like Facebook groups that are organising lifts together and mm. it's, it's yeah, it's definitely something that I feel like we can do and that we have the power to do in our little Melbourne bubble of Absolutely. privilege. Absolutely. And I suppose um, with the social media and stuff around it, how can we mm. kind of interact with you if, if we're here in Melbourne? Yeah, Great question. So there's actually um there's actually a page that I've been I've been instructed to tell everyone to get your friends to follow, to follow yourself, to to tell everyone you know to follow it. Um so tomorrow at three thirty there's gonna be a huge fundraiser that's like really fundamental that's aired on this page. It's called Friends of Galilee Basin. So just yeah, f- give that a follow and keep your eye out tomorrow at three thirty. There'll be a huge fundraiser that's airing and some videos straight from camp which will be great to see um other than that jump online and 
have a look at Frontline Action on Coal mm-hmm. or um, Extinction Rebellion has some really great events on as well throughout Melbourne. If you can't get down to the front a- Frontline Action camp, then... Um, yeah, there's still stuff you can do back in Nam. So absolutely, and I guess that's the, the that's the thing. Um, even I will be back down here in Melbourne unless you've got plans, Eva. Um, so we'll be supporting you from up here. <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> or from down here, I should say. Um, but in the meantime, while you're up there, we'll, we'll definitely have to get you to come on, you know, on a weekly basis and let us know how you're going. Yeah, I'd love to do oh, that. Up for that, Tilly? Mm. Wonderful. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. We're actually going to end a little bit earlier today. Um, because. Well, we've got the next show to start, and also I've got a few stings to play, so <laughs> um, we're going to say goodbye to Tilly and Eva, who have joined us on the phone talking about progress. Um, thank you so much for tuning in, guys. Thank you. Thank no you. Uh, just kind of a quick wrap-up of the show. Um, we started off with uh, discussions about Western Sahara, which you can tune into on Tuesday, um, kind of downtime, as well as we've also talked to... Two Matts. We've talked to Matt, who has conducted a study looking at how we perceive facts through our political prisms. And we've talked to Matt from the Victorian National Parks Association about an exciting new kind of green park initiative, uh, which I, for one, hope goes through. Um, yeah, and definitely, if you are interested with our last kind of interview, if you're interested with Tilly... Get in contact with FLAC. They're doing some amazing stuff. Or if you're down here in Melbourne, um, get involved with Extinction Rebellion. Why not, if you're interested? Anyway, here's the Breakfast Supporters. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a lovely Wednesday, guys. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation Stollinger. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, You can check them out at nibs.org.au and if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.